Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. And as always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery, and Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff. We start off with the investigation that is continuing of the six-year-old student that shot his teacher in Virginia. We bring in Julie Ellen McConnell, Director of Children's Defense Clinic and Law Professor at the University of Richmond. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Professor, obviously this uh, incident raises some interesting legal questions, some disturbing questions about um, you know, incidents like this in Virginia, can a six-year-old be charged with a crime, including attempted murder? Technically, a child could be charged as young as six, but realistically, you would never be able to try a six-year-old for a criminal act because they have to be competent to stand trial. Tell us more about that. How does that differ? Sorry, Tina. How does that differ from the test that you would usually apply to any other defendant? Um, what would you look for in a six-year-old that would determine whether they uh, are competent to um, stand trial? Well, we would apply the same test to a child of any age, but essentially that is we have to make sure that the child would understand the nature of the proceedings, what their rights are, what the role of all the parties in the courtroom are, you know, how to take an oath, how to assist their counsel in you know, representing them in the case. These are things that would be extremely challenging for a child as young as six year old to six years old to ever really understand. So, Julie, given these complications and how tough it would be, what other options does the state have in dealing with this child? Well, what we really should be doing is looking at how how do we protect this child and other children and their teachers in the classroom. How do we make sure that guns aren't so available to children in the community that they can access them, especially young children like this who have no idea how permanent and, and grave the consequences could be if they shot a gun and actually hit someone as this young person did. So there are other things the court can do. The court could intervene in what's called a child in need of services petition, if everyone agreed that that was the appropriate um, route. And that would give the court the opportunity to both assist the family with parenting classes, you know, some education about safely storing a gun so that children can access it, making sure that the home is a safe envir environment overall. And making sure that if the child has any mental health needs or other needs that could be met through court programs, that that would be the way to access those programs. It's called a child in need of services petition or CHINS petition. But Professor, what about punishment, right? I mean, if this child is deemed to be not suited for trial, um, you know, there are those options available to you. One of the goals, one of the, you know, several goals of the penal system obviously is to penalize, to punish. Now, that might not be as um, important with a six-year-old, but after all, this is someone who allegedly brought a gun to school and shot a teacher. Now, I think the teacher's going to recover pretty pretty well, which is great news, but at some point, at what age does the need to penalize a child uh, uh, for this come into play, and 
Is there a certain age that that's more relevant than others? I would say that as a society, particularly the American society, we are really acculturated to extreme punishments. And we always look to how do we seek punishment, retribution, accountability. But this is more complex than that. A child of six years old would probably not even understand what they were being punished for, you know, to connect what he did several weeks ago with what might be addressed in court is not something he's going to be able to comprehend. And so we really need to focus more on how do we prevent this type of behavior? How do we assist this child with whatever was happening in his life that led to this event? How do we assist the other children and their parents in that school who experienced this? How do we assist this incredible teacher who obviously is very devoted to her children and did everything she could to get the other children to safety? There's a lot here that we can learn from. This is an opportunity to address these issues in a different way with a different lens that is not solely focused on punishment, but is more on prevention. I have just one follow-up. So what about, you know, another goal of any penal system is obviously deterrence, right? Um, Is there any any importance there in sending a message to others? Do other six-year-olds comprehend, for example, if you make an example out of a child like this? Because certainly with an older child or any regular defendant, right, one of the goals in punishing them would be for the deterrent effect. Does that apply to six-year-olds? What, what science tells us is that the deterrent effect is really not um, something that, that children experience, especially six-year-olds. You know, um, he's he's wondering, you know, what he's going to have for snack and what he, you know, what time he goes to bed tonight. Not, are, were other kids held accountable for things like this? I mean, deterrence is just not a concept that has any place in you know, in a conversation about a six-year-old. I completely understand why as a society we want to find ways to deter this type of behavior, but we should be focusing more on deterring parents from having guns in their home that are so easily accessible to their children. You know, that's where the deterrent might actually work is to have laws that specifically address the need to safely store handguns if you have children in the home. So, we are we fall short in that area in Virginia. We don't have a law that is specifically on point here that will address this in a you know clear cut way. There are perhaps paths to prosecution if that's what the prosecutor thinks is appropriate, but Virginia's laws in this regard are are fairly weak. So, is there any angle, Julie, for the parents? I think it was the child's mother whose gun this was. Is there any path in terms of liability potentially for um, this child's mother in terms of her allowing this to happen and having the gun accessible? Right. So, of course, we're making a lot of assumptions about whether she allowed it to happen, had any knowledge that he had access to the gun. We don't know that yet. We do know that someone reported to the school that he might have brought a gun to school. So at least someone was aware of that possibility. So I'm sure that's being investigated very carefully. Um I would say that another way to approach this might be to look at, is there neglect here? Was the gun handled in a criminally negligent way in the home such that the child could access it? I don't want to you know, jump to any conclusions. There may be very good reasons that this mother felt she needed a gun in the home to protect herself and her family. And I, I don't judge her for the decisions she may have made around needing to provide a safe environment. But if it turns out through the investigation that um, she knew the child was curious about the gun, knew where the gun was, um, had asked, you know, how it worked, that sort of thing, 
and obviously someone did know that he had some um, possibility of having uh, having obtained the gun, then there is potentially some responsibility there that might be addressed through the criminal process. This is a tragedy on all counts, and I'm sure that this mother is absolutely um, horrified by what happened and had no desire to have her child hurt anyone else with this gun. And so I hope that we will look at it holistically and try to understand what happened and how we can, you know, address it in a positive way that sends a message, as you said, um, Rich, to deter others from this sort of behavior. But this is a complex issue, and there are a lot of reasons that our community our communities have embraced the idea that you need a firearm to protect yourself. And so when we send that message repeatedly, sometimes this is what happens. People do, you know, follow that advice and then they create a dangerous situation. And many children have been hurt in their own homes accidentally by firearms. And it, it doesn't ever seem to get our attention in the way that we need it to, to actually do something to change how easy it is to access firearms for children. Yeah, it's a great point. And Professor, certainly the trend seems to be, and we've covered this extensively in our podcast, that the trend is nationwide in these types of shootings or attempted shootings that uh, there is some degree of accountability for the parents. We just saw that in the Highland Park case here where we are, that the father of the shooter was brought into a, a lawsuit by several of the um, uh, uh, victims' families. But what about the school, right? We've learned since the shooting that... Um, there was a staffer that allegedly searched the backpack of his child and found no weapon hours before the actual shooting happened. Do you see any liability, either criminal or civil? Criminal, maybe, but more likely there would be a civil lawsuit against uh, either that individual staffer or the school. You know, the problem is we know so little about exactly what happened. You know, he came into school late that day after lunch. And it was not long before uh, he not long after he arrived at school that this happened. They apparently, according to the reports I've seen, searched his backpack in the office. Did they did the person doing the searching actually have directly the information from the caller or was it coming from several different people? You know, so there so it was diluted in some way. Didn't know how serious it was. I have no idea. Yes, possibly there is liability here on the part of the school if they're if they had warning and didn't take further steps. They could have called the police. They could have done a school-wide search. Certainly this happens in schools all the time. I think you have to understand, though, the context that when you're talking about a six-year-old, probably no one thought, you know, in their wildest dreams that anything like this could happen. And so they probably thought it was a mistake or, you know, that someone had had um, called in a prank or something like that. And they didn't take it as seriously, perhaps, as they should have. And that's that's a tragedy, of course. Uh, but then we just don't know enough yet to know where the liability actually lies. So, Julie, last week, um, or actually earlier this week, video revealed an even younger child, a four-year-old, waving a gun around a hallway in, in Indianapolis. Um, this, you know, to your point, this is just another example of where, unfortunately, children have access to firearms and don't necessarily know the consequences of what they're doing or what they're even doing in the moment. Do you care to comment on that situation? That's just, you know, so heartbreaking, just as this case is. And we have to do better. We have to protect our children from these situations. You know, I mean, a four-year-old, a six-year-old, they have no idea um, of permanent consequences. And so we are being neglectful as a society when we don't do more to protect these kids from being put in these situations where they're around these dangerous weapons. 
So I see it as a collective responsibility um, for all of us to, to do better. Our children deserve better. Once again, that's Julie Ellen McConnell of the University of Richmond. Julie, thank you very much for such a hard topic. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Moving along on the Legal Faceoff podcast, we're pleased to welcome in our next guest, law professor at Georgia State University, Anthony Michael Christ. Anthony, thank you for being here today. Happy to be here. Professor, so just to set up the latest on this um, transgender bathroom issue, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, recently became the first federal appellate court to decide that a school policy separating student bathrooms based on biological sex passes constitutional muster and comports with Title IX. This case was brought by Drew Adams, who's a transgender plaintiff, who sued the St. John's School Board after he was barred from using uh, male bathrooms while attending his high school in Florida, in Ponte Verde. Uh, he described a walk of shame and they had to endure on his way to the restroom. Uh, he felt that he was not worthy of occupying the same space as his classmates. The school had gender-neutral bathrooms, but the plaintiff uh, maintained that he felt ashamed because he was unable to use the bathroom that matched his gender identity. Now, this actually is contrary to several years, seven or eight years, of transgender students' claims under Title IX uh, or the Equal Protection Clause have been succeeding. So why the switch, in your opinion? Well, the 11th Circuit is a very different circuit than some of these other courts that have heard cases similar to the one that came out of Florida. Um, in fact, I was in Chicago when the Whitaker decision came out from the 7th Circuit, um, which found that Title VII and the 14th Amendment protects trans students in public schools uh, to use restroom and, and changing facilities consistent with their gender identity. Um, and it, that decision was very much in line with the 4th Circuit and, and other circuits, which are more liberal than what we have down here in the 11th Circuit. So I really don't think that there's a big difference. It's just ideology. So, Professor, what are the competing interests that the court referenced in deciding this case? Yeah, so, so there's basically the privacy interests of other students versus the dignitary interests of the trans students who are bringing these claims. And the court essentially said that 
whatever dignitary harms might have been imposed on uh, Drew Adams here or already trans student by having to go to a single uh, stall facility or something of that nature, um, that any anything, any harm that resulted from that was outweighed by the privacy interests um, of other students who may not want to use the restroom or change in front of somebody um, whose gender identity matched theirs, but whose sex assigned at birth was was different. Professor, how do you see the Supreme Court handling this issue, given how conservative it now is? It's a solidly 6-3 conservative majority. How do you think they'll handle this issue? Yeah, it's going to be very tough. I mean, on the one hand, this, this Supreme Court, or at least five justices on it, um, are, I think, sympathetic to the claim that um, transgender discrimination is a form of sex discrimination. We we heard that from the Bostock decision a few years ago under Title VII. Uh, but they are also very much open to religious claims against uh, LGBTQ rights and do seem, I think, perhaps sympathetic to the idea that trans rights stop at a certain spot where heterosexuals and cisgender people feel slightly uncomfortable by gender nonconforming uh, persons and, and perhaps in schools will take uh, an acutely, I think, uh, discriminatory position on this. So I, I'm not hopeful if it gets to the Supreme Court that it will be resolved in favor of trans students, um, but we'll have to see how that plays out in briefing and oral arguments. But I think at the end of the day, there, there's probably not going to be the appetite to appeal this decision. And it may well, well very be the case that trans advocates decide to take their lumps here in the 11th Circuit and preserve those other wins in the 4th Circuit, in the 11th Circuit, and elsewhere. Just a, a follow-up to that, if I can. Uh, do, do you see any corollary between the Dobbs decision and how the Supreme Court might rule in this issue, or in particular, uh, Justice Thomas's dissent in that case? Well, I... I think the, the similarity between these things is that um, bodily autonomy is really what's at stake here. Um, people should have the ability to be free and to to have the law protect them based on their gender identity and their right their their self actualization needs. And I don't think the court really takes those interests very seriously anymore. And that was fairly obvious in Dobbs. So you know, there's certainly distinct issues, but in terms of the relationship between um, kind of the I, I think some of the misogyny that's baked into the anti-choice movement and the misogyny um, at, that's built into the anti-trans movement, there, there's certainly an ideological connection there. And so I don't view them as distinct things. And I, and I think the court will be somewhat colored by by that kind of uh, relationship. I said to said it was a concurring opinion, of course, but um, yeah, interesting. So, Professor, you've also commented on the Fulton County special grand jury investigating attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, which which issued its final report last week. Why is Georgia law particularly suited to pursue this case? And um, why and do you think that you'll that we'll see charges brought here? Well, I think Georgia law is particularly suited for this because we have some of the most important smoking gun evidence that there was some attempt to solicit election fraud, uh, namely in the in the, the the phone call that President, former President Trump made to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, asking for a number of votes to be changed. Um, and it's very clear from the January 6th committee as well, and the evidence that they unearthed, that Georgia was front and center of the former president's mind and his inner circle's attempts to under, undo the, the election. So um, there's a, I think there's just a, a, a treasure trove of evidence 
Um, the law is pretty clear about solicitation uh, for election fraud being unlawful, and the elements for that seem to match up with the evidence. And I think that the special purpose grand jury having the time and the ability to focus on this for an extended period of time and singularly focus on this case and bring in witnesses from all over the country probably makes this the most likely place that you'll see an, an attempt to impose criminal liability on either the former president or some of the folks in his orbit who were attempting to undo the 2020 election. Professor, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Offs. Always glad to come. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. And Rich and Tina don't look now, but thanks to artificial intelligence, robots might be going after your job as well. And we've got the CEO of the company that's created the robot lawyer, Joshua Browder, founder and CEO of Do Not Pay. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Joshua, as Joe mentioned, um, you're the CEO of Do Not Pay, which is a tech company that has developed an artificial intelligence application that can be used on a smartphone and which next month is going to be making its debut as a robot lawyer uh, in the courtroom to help a defendant fight a traffic ticket. Can you tell us more about this technology and how it works? Yeah, so Do Not Pay started seven years ago um, helping automate consumer rights. We started with things like letters and online disputes, so getting people out of tickets um, over the internet. But recently, the AI technology has gotten so good with publicly available AI models such as ChatGPT that we can actually talk live now with companies and governments on behalf of our customers. So as you mentioned, next month, we're actually bringing AI to the courtroom where it's going to be whispering in someone's ear, telling them exactly what to say during a speeding ticket case. And this will be the first ever time that uh, that's happened. And so we're very nervous, but we have high hopes that it will do well um, because we've been refining it very much over the past month. Josh, I know that some um, critics have questioned whether this technology is is legal to use in the courtrooms. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I posted an offer in December. Who wants to be the first AI speeding ticket case? Um, and the tweet got millions of views, and we received 300 different offers. We picked two cases where it's um, more legal in those areas than some other areas. Um there are so many rules that we have to comply with. We're complying with wiretapping rules because some states, everyone who's being recorded has to give permission. Other states, that's not the case. We're complying with unauthorized practice of law rules. Um, no one could have ever imagined that there will be robot attorneys. And so the rules haven't been really written to account for this in some places. Really, it can only apply to humans. And so we focused on those areas. And then finally, the local courtroom rules. Um, interestingly, just before this interview, I was um, Zooming with the uh, former district attorney of San Francisco, and we were going in detail to make sure uh, we comply with all these areas. Ultimately, the consequences aren't that much, and we're willing to take the risk. To, to make history with AI. So Josh, you've been quoted as saying that the ultimate goal of this technology is to help democratize legal representation by making it accessible for those who might not be able to afford it, and that you're trying to encourage the legal system to change. Can you comment on that? Yes, we want to make the legal system less pay to play. 
right now there are a lot of issues that are not being litigated because people can't afford these expensive lawyers. And these big companies and governments know this, and so they have a business model of concentrated benefit but spread out harm. So what I mean by that is um, a utility company can charge a million Americans a $10 late fee. They make $10 million, but the people getting uh, the $10 charges obviously can't afford to hire a lawyer to fight back. And that's a great job for AI to get people justice and be the David in David versus, versus Goliath. Gosh, lawyers obviously um, have to comply with things like uh, ethics requirements and obviously rules. How are you developing the AI to comply with the same standards that attorneys have to follow? A lot of the, our goal is to automate consumer rights at do not pay. And these cases aren't rocket science. There is not a single lawyer who will get out of bed for a $200 Comcast dispute. And so I think that with a lot of these um issues um it's kind of overhyped the ethical concerns there's not really much that can go wrong a lot of them also only uniquely apply to human beings you can't have an alcoholic robot lawyer but you can have an alcoholic real lawyer and so um I, th I think the people writing the rules have written them in a way to keep legal services expensive and most of them don't really apply to people using technology to inform themselves of the law and come up with the best defense. Because technology is unbiased. It, it doesn't know who you are or what it can get from you. It can just help you and help the pro se litigants um, who can't afford a lawyer. Josh, are you getting any pushback from lawyers? Obviously, you know, um, there's an element of, um, uh, you know, uh, people thinking probably that this technology will diminish the need for people like Tina and I. So I'm sure you're getting some pushback from lawyers who will practice law the more traditional way. In other words, humans. There are lots of amazing lawyers out there who are doing really important work, arguing human rights cases. And I'm sure uh, Tina and you don't have to worry because uh, you guys uh, are really good lawyers. But Certainly, we want to replace the billboard lawyers, the ones you see in the TV show Better Call Saul. So instead of Better Call Saul, it should be Better Call Do Not Pay. Gosh, last question here on Legal Faceoff, uh, unless Tina has something else. Um, will the robot lawyer dance like uh, Megan, the uh, the phenomenon that's taking over the Internet, the, uh, the other famous um, uh, AI um, protagonist right now? No, so it's going to be um, just in someone's ear. So I don't think the judge would allow it in the courtroom, but that's the, that's the next thing we need to work on where we actually build a physical <laughs> robot and it walks in the room. I think that would shock everyone. So yeah. we, we maybe the sequel to Megan is Megan to, uh, you know, AI lawyer. Yeah. I do have one last question. I'm just curious um, to Rich's point. Um, where do you see this technology going next month? We've got uh, the robot lawyer in the courtroom. What else is coming down the pipe that you can share with us in the next 30 seconds? We're building. So the, the courtroom is a experiment that to advocate for courts to allow AI in courtrooms. But we have real products that we're launching. What we're most excited about right now is AI legal review of medical bills. So we have a product coming out where a consumer can upload their medical bill and it finds all of the areas under the, something called the No Surprises Act, which just passed last year um, of how it can help people reduce those bills. And if AI can save uh, someone 50 
$50,000 or $10,000. That's real value to people. And so I'm so excited about that. Talking about the future right here on the Legal Faceoff Podcast. Again, that's Joshua Browder, founder and CEO of Do Not Pay. Joshua, thank you so much for the insight today. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag. Let's get to our two guests for today's show. We start with Stephanie Jones, partner at Gordon & Reese. With accolades like being named one of the top women in law by Law Bulletin Media, Best Lawyers in America, and 40 Under 40 of Illinois Attorneys to Watch. Stephanie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. We also welcome back Dr. Claire Musselman, Principal of CM Advising, Professor at Drake University, and member of Chief, a network motivated to incorporating more women into power. Dr. Claire Musselman, thank you very much for being here again. Thanks, Joe. Happy to be here. Rich, let's start off with the topic of former President Trump appointed U.S. attorney currently investigating classified documents that were found by current President Joe Biden's lawyers. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting you know few days in the world of classified documents. I don't think any of us ever thought that this would be an issue until the last month or two, Tina. But um, apparently it's very common to bring these documents home, store them uh, you know, at Mar-a-Lago, store them next to your Corvette. Apparently uh, the president thought that because of his proximity to his car, that might be, you know, within the boundaries of top uh, secret classified uh, requirements. But, you know, what's interesting as lawyers is and I think that the key question, ultimately, maybe the key difference between Trump and Biden uh, among the couple or three differences is intent. Right. I mean, in order to prove that a criminal act took place in holding these documents and failing to turn them over is intent. Right. Any criminal prosecutor will tell you that. And the question is, if you are going to prosecute Joe Biden under what is clearly a crime, there's no question that holding these documents, possessing them can be a crime under the Espionage Act, under some other statutes. But I think the key question in actually proving, um, you know, that some criminal act took place, if that was ever the charge, remembering that the DOJ has a policy against prosecuting sitting presidents, but, you know, this happened while he was a vice president, is intent. And it seems to me uh, that the difference here might be that Trump, you know, forgetting what side of the fence you are, Republican or conservative or Democrat or liberal, it seems to me that Trump actively was trying to uh, interfere with an investigation. And 
uh, fails to turn over these documents after many, many requests by the DOJ and by the FBI. The difference is it doesn't seem that Biden had the same intent. It seems like once his lawyers discovered that he was in possession of these documents, they turned it uh, they turned it over. Now, I think politically, the fact that they have uh, released this information in drips and drabs and failed to turn over this information until after the midterms is really a problem politically. In terms of like a criminal prosecution intent, I think there might be a bit of a difference. Tina, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I agree with everything you've profiled, Rich. I mean, I do think that there are some differences here between the the current situation and with former President Trump. That being said, I mean, there are several questions that cross my mind, like why, oh, why would you bring these things home and put them in your garage? And I understand, you know, like changing jobs where you have confidential information. We talked about the um, COO of Proskauer in our last show um, and taking confidential information or information that you know that at least under the law, you probably shouldn't be, you know, materials that you shouldn't be bringing home. Just why he had them. I mean, that's just not a good situation. The way that you profiled this with respect to the timing in the in the midterms and so forth is another huge problem. And especially in the context of everything that's happened with Trump and how, um, you know, people like the Democrats have been on attack with respect to the way that he's acted with respect to the documents at issue for him. All of these things together, I don't think really um, make a comfortable situation for President Biden right now. And it's unfortunate. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Stephanie, we're hypersensitive generally as attorneys to the confidentiality of documents, right? I mean, we don't we don't just throw the documents that we use and review in the trash. We're, we've been trained to deal with those. Um, it, it seems like, you know, the people who own, occupy the highest office in the land don't have the same standards, which is a little strange. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you started this off by talking about intent. And, and as I was, uh, you know, looking at these issues, I sort of cast intent aside and started thinking about mishandling of classified documents is, is just problematic, whether you meant to or it was accidental. Like you mentioned, us as lawyers, not only do we keep those things sensitive and that's a big deal, we have processes, protocols, procedures in our firm to ensure that even inadvertent disclosures don't happen, right? So the question of why they were there, it's still unanswered. But I think what's what is interesting and interesting and what Tina just alluded to was there are differences between how Biden and how Trump handled this. There's some similarities though, not to to undermine the differences, but both. President Trump and President Biden did have sensitive, classified, and I think both had top secret documents in their possession outside of the classified document protocol, right? It wasn't what it was supposed to be. But there are differences, right? I think Trump tore up some documents, right? Biden didn't. Biden turned them over immediately and notified the proper authorities immediately. Um, Biden had about 10 documents where Trump had bankers boxes of documents. You know, I think it's still premature. We don't know exactly what was in these documents or why. I know that the investigation is ongoing with respect to Biden, but those differences are going to be, um, I think, considerable. But I, I think we can all agree that this is just a bad look for, for Biden at this point, especially since he was so outspoken about, you know, classified documents and then mishandling with, with Trump. Yeah, and Dr. Uh, Claire, we, we now have competing uh, special counsels, and it seems like just politically there's no way that the prosecution... Uh, 
of Trump, which seemed fairly inevitable before, which excited a lot of people who feel that the former president should be prosecuted. Just politically, that seems to be dead, right? Because what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You can't really, I think, prosecute Trump, even though there are a lot of differences. And what I think Trump, I think that what Trump did was way worse. Like politically, they kind of cancel each other out at this point. I kind of agree with you on that. I think a lot of it is coming down to perception. And when you, like, as you said, you know, we're now we're past midterms. If nothing else, you know, usually we like to learn from other people's examples. And so I think this, I think from a, it looks like egg on your face either way when you're looking at this. And when we talk about, like you guys are talking about from the legal aspect of understanding your confidential documents, et cetera. I used to be a chief risk officer. We dealt with a lot of confidential information. There is almost um, like you can't, unknow what you know. And in those type of situations, you know what a classified document is. You know what's right and wrong. You're also holding the highest position in the land. Like you can't tell me you didn't really know what was going on. So I think a lot of this is going to come down to perception. And then where do we want to go with that from a legal standpoint and setting the tone for what comes next? Because I'm sure this won't be the last time that we hear about this in the highest office. Rich, let's move on to the next topic. Houston asked activists are calling for the arrest of a man who gunned down a robber. So, yeah, this happened in, in Houston. This was a Taqueria. Most of us saw this uh, unfold on video where the shooter, the the purported robber, comes into the restaurant holding a gun, takes money from a lot of the patrons. They duck under the tables. And then as this um, would-be robber is leaving the restaurant, the Taqueria, this patron uh, pulls out a gun and shoots the bad guy in the back and, and kills him. And actually then takes his drink and spills it on the guy as he's leaving. And then uh, the camera shifts to outside. He jumps in his pickup truck and he's gone. Uh, in the wake of that, uh, this individual was found. The shooter was found and uh, is going to face a grand jury. A couple of interesting questions legally are, number one, is the shooting justified? There is law in Texas that allows you to use deadly force if you perceive that there's an immediate risk to you or someone else. Um, and the second question is whether this person should face um, some civil liability. A lot of civil rights groups have alleged that he went far beyond what was necessary to eliminate this threat. After all, this individual, was the, 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 the robber was shooting, I mean, was leaving when he was shot in the back. So there's lots of questions um, from civil rights um, uh, individuals who are alleging that this person should face liability because he used excessive force. I mean, you know, this is Texas. And what, what should be noted, yeah. Tina and Joe and everyone else, is that the gun that this would-be robber was using turned out to be a toy. Actually, on video, you can see the shooter take the uh, toy gun and say it's a toy and throws it against the wall and it explodes. Um, but, you know, that's not that real. That's not really that relevant because the question is, would a reasonable person in that situation perceive that to be a threat? A lot of these toy guns obviously look like real guns. So I think that wouldn't be that relevant. But, Tina, was this reasonable? Uh, you know, was this a reasonable shooting? Um, again, we're in Texas, right? Uh, everyone knows the saying, don't mess with Texas. I think if you, many would say, if you go into a store or restaurant to rob people with a gun, then all bets are off um, knowing that, you know, a lot of people in Texas, as growing number in every state, are carrying guns. Yeah, so I'm interested to hear what our guests think too, but just a couple things. I mean, first of all, my understanding is that this guy shot this robber multiple times. And so there was a question as to whether he really needed to shoot him at all, let alone multiple times the way he did. I think it's questionable at best whether the shooter really felt like he was in immediate harm's way, especially when you have the robber 
leaving the premises. Um, this whole notion of pouring a drink on the dead body after he shot this person multiple times. I mean, to me, this just conveys someone who at best is trying to be a hero and, you know, be, you know, glorify themselves. And I mean, it's just, it, it, it just smells of something out of a movie. And it's really unfortunate because law enforcement, really, this was law enforcement's job, assuming that no one, no one had any imminent threat of bodily harm or anything like that. And the robber was really leaving and this robber could have left without, you know, assume that they actually had a gun that could do damage. I mean, it sounded to me like this person was leaving and just wanted to get out of there with whatever they ended up getting by virtue of the robbery. I, I think it, it, it seemed to me very questionable that anybody was really feeling like they were in, in, in harm's way or imminent harm's way to the point where it would justify this kind of shooting and particularly never the, the behavior afterwards would never be justified. So I, I think that the way that the shooter behaved was completely inappropriate. Claire, the shooting uh, was, in fact, there was nine bullets. And under Texas law, though, uh, the uh, a shooting is presumed to be reasonable in the case of an armed robbery. And then the presumption, you know, shifts back to the defendant showing that, that you know, why it wasn't reasonable. So um, or, or the state to show why it was reasonable. So does that change your feeling at all on this? Well, so I look at this from a couple of things. I, I totally agree with Tina on the fact that the demeanor afterwards is a little telling, but also when we're looking at this and I'm going to go like good Samaritan law. So this guy's like trying to help out the people that have all been robbed at this point. Um, he's not trained like a law enforcement officer would be to know exactly what you're supposed to do in that situation where maybe one of us would think, okay, we're going to do what we need to do to detain him and uh, detract risk from everybody else there. And we'll just wait until law enforcement gets there. I don't know that everybody has that mentality with this. And while we're dealing with Texas specifically in this area, you know, it's just a little wilder in Texas to begin with. So I look at it from that landscape of he hasn't been trained for this. So when we look at reasonable prudence, I don't know that I would say, I don't know if I agree or disagree. I just think that there's a really big tell on the aftermath of dumping the drink on the guy. Plus you could have always shot him in the leg or something. I mean, you get nine bullets out. But to your point, Claire and, and Stephanie, I mean, this this individual is not a trained, presumably not no. a trained marksman, not a trained police officer. And while you might apply the standard that Tina referenced, um, that it's only reasonable to shoot them once or to shoot them in the leg. Sure. Uh, on the flip side is police themselves are trained to unload their weapon, right? Because you don't know the degree to which you're going to stop an assailant. So, um, you know, if you apply that standard, this person did the right thing. But even if you don't, how can you expect someone in the heat of this moment to know, well, if I shoot them in this part of the body, that'll stop them? I mean, it might be reasonable to unload your weapon and then worry about it later if there's someone waving a gun around a restaurant. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, you've got adrenaline running through the body. This is not somebody that practices practices this on a standard daily basis. And to hold an, a gun license these days, you don't have to prove that you can shoot. You just have to be able to know like the parts of the gun, what to do if, when, et cetera. So again, when we go back down to, he is a civilian, he is not a trained law enforcement. And so do you try and hold the same standards there? Stephanie, what do you think? No, I think that's a really good point. I do question, you know, how much experience he has with God. I mean, he's, he's in a taqueria with a loaded firearm, ready to shoot. Right. And seemed pretty cavalier about shooting somebody nine times in the back and then dumping some, some water on his head as he walked out and got in his car and left. He didn't seem like he cared that much about, about, that guy. And, and I, I realized he was the assailant. He was in there to rob people. 
But Texas self-defense laws, the, the applicable penal code, requires that the minimum amount of force be used necessary to protect against that crime, right? And that there's a reasonable belief that the force necessary was was going to stop someone from committing a crime equal to or greater than what you were doing, right? He was robbing someone. I think Rich's point is well taken. The toy gun doesn't matter. You know, everyone's in the heat of the crime is going to think it's real. You're going to have to assume for your own safety that it's real, right? Um, but I think there's a lot of questions here. and and. I wonder if they're going to be able to find some sort of expert that said, you know, he was wounded and defenseless after shot one and then, you know, or shot two. Right. But he by shot three, four five and, and beyond it was just murder. Right. You know, I think that the, the discovery is going to be interesting in this case, you know, assuming they get past the grand jury. I also think it sets an interesting precedent for what comes next, because then now are you going to have people that are more fear based into okay, well, I do carry, all right, if something happens, well, shoot, I don't want to go to jail when I'm just trying to save other people in my community. Right. Not in Texas. People are still shooting first in Texas anyway. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> don't get into a, don't get into a rear ender in, in Houston. <laughs> our next topic, I'm interested in the resolution of it, Tina, because, you know, you and Rich are very strict about my non-compete clause in my contract. I'm not able to moderate any other legal <laughs> podcast out there. Uh, could we see an end to non-compete clauses in independent contractors' contracts? Yeah, Joe, I know you're watching this one very closely because uh, Rich and I run a very tight ship here. So um, in a recent and potentially landmark announcement a couple weeks ago, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has proposed a rule that would ban employers from imposing non-compete agreements on workers and independent contractors. The FTC is taking this position on the basis that non-competes harm competition by blocking employees from finding better opportunities with other employers. And the FTC claims to have authority to ban these types of unfair methods of competition under the Federal Trade Commission Act. Non-competes apparently impact about 20% of the workforce. And if this rule goes into effect, it would not only ban new non-compete agreements, it would also require the rescission of existing non-competes. Generally, the rule would not ban other types of employment restrictions unless they're so broad that they essentially function as a non-compete. The rule would also include an exemption for non-compete clauses between the seller and buyer of a business. Now, the FTC is currently seeking comment on this and is looking for comments in particular in, in a number of areas, including how this could potentially impact franchisees, um, as well as how it could impact senior executives and whether they should be exempted from the rule. And also whether low and high, high wage workers should be treated differently under the rule. Um, there are likely to be a number of challenges to the FTC's power to do this, and some experts are saying that given the current climate today and the current makeup of the Supreme Court, that it may not stand. And some experts are also saying that Congress never delegated the FTC this type of authority in the first instance. All of this is happening against the backdrop of a handful of states already banning non-competes and 21 others having imposed some form of limitation on non-competes. So, Rich, everybody's buzzing about this, at least in the legal community. Lots of, um, you know, presentations being done, client presentations, CLEs and whatnot. So definitely one of the most important developments we've seen in a while. Yeah, it's a hugely 
broadly affecting rule. I mean, I don't think the general public has sort of picked up on it yet, um, but I think once they do and realize how impactful it is, it'll get a lot more attention. But, you know, I think it's a reflection to your point of, you know, where we are sort of as a as a work society and coming off COVID and people, um, you know, moving about as much as they are. I mean, more than ever, people are jumping, you know, positions. We've heard of quiet quitting and all that. So I think this is in part uh, a reaction to that. But, you know, what's interesting is that the you're still allowed to protect trade secrets. Um, and generally, you know, non-compete agreements would be so broad that they would include trade secrets. So I'm interested to see how that plays out, how you could, on the one hand, not have a non-compete, but also protect trade secrets. There's some industries that are very specific about those trade secrets. But I think, listen, on the, on the in the grand scheme of things, um, it, it, it'll also come down to, as you mentioned, the politics of it, right? I mean, um, you know, conservatives want to have a, a more free market where people are able to compete without the heavy-handed, uh, you know, regulation of government. Um, uh, you know, some others feel that there might, there should be more regulation. So, and and you also raise a good point as to whether the FTC actually has jurisdiction over that. That'll be litigated too. So, there will be lots of litigation about this for sure, and we'll continue to follow it. But, Stephanie, what are your thoughts on uh, on this development? You know, I think the FTC is is trying to hit a home run here, and and it's really broad. It's it's beyond sweeping. I, I think that the questions about their power to effectuate something like this are certainly going to be litigated. I mean, employers got smarter about these, you know, years ago, and they started tethering non-competes to a financial payment. So if they become retroactively ineffective, are we going back to people who who's you know paid? $10,000, $20,000, and they're going to have to pay that back. I mean, there's so many questions about how this would be impacted um, or applied. But I think, you know, when I see something like this, I think about what the real trend is. You know, I think right now a lot of people are just, whoa, this seems really striking. But what I think most likely is going to end up happening is a continuing trend that I think that we've seen across the country for the last 20 years. We now show, I think Tina mentioned, 21 states across the country have, have outlawed them. There's other provisions you mentioned COVID, Rich, um, you know, time and geographic components to, to non-competes used to be sort of the overarching theme for applicability. What is a geographic, you know, restriction when someone's doing their job based in Chicago, but they're working in Cabo San Lucas or, you know, the Bahamas or New York, right? And I think it became very difficult for ports to, to apply. But the trend that I think that, I'm, that, that we're going to see, regardless of whether the FTC is able to apply something like this is or I guess I'm assuming that they're not, um, that I think it's going to be more focused on the lower wage earners, you know, the more vulnerable um, people who are subject to, to broad sweeping non-competes that really aren't tethered to, to any real risk for a company that they're taking trade secrets or things like that. You know, that's that's the trend here in Illinois. And I think that's sort of the middle approach. And I think that's what we're going to see where it's going to be more focused on executive level employees and, and non-competes in that in that level of of, of employee and, and the lower wage earners and, and the people that aren't exposed to those more confidential information or trade secrets are going to be uh, eliminated from applicability of non-competes. Claire, anything else on that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think from the ones that I've seen, they're very much heavily or they're heavily versed in more of that geographic location versus it being trade secrets. And I think if we could separate those kind out, I think you do see it impacting a lot of the lower wage earners more so on an impact basis. And especially with the way that COVID worked. And I, I like everything that Stephanie just said with that. Um, I am 
I personally think from a competitive market standpoint, I like seeing them go away. I think it's, you know what, I think it's time for companies to put their money where their mouth is and start stepping it up. And if we end up separating out like the trade secrets versus it being like just a stereotypical non-compete, so the more the merrier. Let's see what people really have. Start spreading the news. Kanye's lawyers drop him as a client in an old school and Tina kind of a little bit passive aggressive way. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yay's disappeared, Joe. What do you do? So all of us are saying, where, oh, where are you, yay? Um, it looks like- Are we just- really saying that though? Or are we saying <laughs> goodbye? Yeah, please go away. Well, you know, it's just ironic for the guy who was everywhere all the time, way too much for my liking. He suddenly is nowhere anytime. So he's disappeared and folks have had a tough time tracking him down the past couple of months, particularly after he made the news going on a rather disturbing anti-Semitic tirade. Greenberg Traurig, who has represented Ye, including in a number of copyright cases, many of which where Ye has been the defendant and they've been sampling cases, um, GT still can't reach him and they've gone to court about it. Ye has also apparently changed his phone number um, that he used to communicate with his lawyers. Apparently he had a special number for them and they're no longer able to reach him at that number. So in order to reach him, his lawyers, or now his ex-lawyers, asked a judge if they could publish classified ads in L.A.-based newspapers to make it abundantly clear that they are no longer representing him in the cases they were handling for him and so that he could find someone else to do that. The judge allowed Greenberg Traurig to exit the cases, and and the judge asked GT to serve Ye with her order telling him that he either needs to get his himself new lawyers or represent himself pro se in those cases. Um, it may be tricky because Ye um, has apparently also moved out of the addresses that he was recently associated with too. So these newspaper ads um, serve as service by publication. So Rich, um, I'm not quite sure how Ye completely disappears when he's got all those kids. And, you know, usually celebrities can't stand not being in the, in the limelight. But uh, there you have it. Ye keeps surprising us. I mean, this is a story like that seems a little old school. Like Greenberg has, I just look it up, 2,200 attorneys, right? They're ranked in the Global 200, number 21. And they're trying to get a hold of the client in the old-fashioned newspaper? <laughs> like, like yeah see like breaking news alarm we tried to find uh kanye west i mean it seems like an odd way to do it and 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 my 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 second question is like what's gonna happen when they try to get paid undoubtedly kanye owes them like millions of dollars that he hasn't paid them how are they gonna get paid from this guy so it's an interesting way of trying to go about your client i mean i i'll say that i i sometimes have difficulty reaching clients but i haven't yet put an ad in like the chicago tribune um, but hey, whatever works, whatever. If, if Connie's listening to our podcast, I know he's an avid follower, Tina, of Legal Faceoff. Call your loyal. Call call your lawyers, Connie. It's 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 overdue. Claire? Um, I'm a little disappointed it wasn't done in a TikTok version. I mean, yeah. don't, don't, I mean, they were going old school newspaper. First of all, I think it's absolutely perfect to do it big and bold. I think it, it definitely sends the right the message that Kanye, or excuse me, Ye would respond to. But I'm kind of surprised that we didn't go with social media outlet as well. A little disappointed that we're only going print news on this one. Stephanie, you're, Stephanie? Managing, part, you're <laughs> managing partner of a firm, Stephanie. Uh, is this an approach <laughs> that you might now take to get a hold of some of your clients? 
You know, I, I really hope not. Uh, most of my clients pick up my phone calls. I'm happy to report. So <laughs> I haven't had this issue before. Um, but from someone who's typically on the defense side, you know, I noticed that the GT was representing two other corporate entities for Kanye. And, and as we all know, you know, they can't represent themselves. So I think the judge is concerned who else is getting these, these mailings and these filings, right? I mean, it's not just Kanye, it's an LLC and, and, and the corporation, I think that they're representing and, and what happens to them, you know, do they just go into default? It's, it's a big case that, that we're talking about, um, a class action, I believe. So I think the court is concerned um, about not only his well-being, but but what happens to representation of the corporations. Maybe someone should call Kim and see if maybe using Find My iPhone, maybe you know, maybe, maybe she still has that clipped on. <laughs> Check him on Snap Maps. See where his location is on Snap Maps. Well, TMZ seems to be able to find him no problem. You know? <laughs> so why don't we call them and have them serve? You whoever TMZ is using. Deputize his clap back to this will be interesting. I'm sure. I'm sure we saw quite a few rants last year. I'm sure this will be a good one though, from a response standpoint. Well, Rich, you made me realize that you can't spell goodbye without yay. So it'll be interesting to see how this develops. <laughs> you can try. But... You can try. Yeah, just be good. Um, let's move on to, unfortunately, a, a pretty gruesome story, Rich, that involves a pretty clueless murderer. Yeah, I mean, it's breaking today. I was watching this morning the uh, Raymond in court in Boston. So uh, this individual um, has now been, it's Brian Walsh, right? And we've been following the story for a couple of weeks. His wife disappeared, uh, Anna Walsh. Um, and initially, this, this guy was charged with uh, failing to cooperate with authorities. And now he was charged with murder. And what struck me in listening to the litany of evidence that the state has against him, all of which they've outlined in court today, is, you know, how dumb can you be? I mean, you know, not to say that anyone who murders their wife is necessarily thinking the right way. But if you listen to all of this evidence, it's like, except for missing the body, which we'll talk about in a second, which is very interesting legally. You know, this guy did everything from use his son's iPad to search terms like, how to dismember a body. Um, does a body uh, uh, smell? Um, he went to Home Depot on video and bought literally like if you looked up in the dictionary, what tools would I need to kill someone and then, you know, cut them up and bury them? This guy would be there. So everything from a tarp to shovels to a hatchet to cleaning supplies to mops. Right. I mean, like literally everything. It's It's the most incriminating you know, set of facts I've seen in a long time. His blood is on, um, it, it was found in the basement. Now, what's interesting legally is her blood was found there too. And I raise that because there is a precedence criminally of uh, cases like this uh, resulting in not guilty verdicts because the defendant alleges self-defense. And the fact that both of their blood is on there, I think will lead him to argue that I was only acting in self-defense. We've seen that before in the Robert Durst case. He was the guy who got off multiple times. He was the subject of the HBO documentary, uh, The Curse. He alleged that he acted in, in self-defense. In fact, he allegedly dismembered a body in that case, and the jury still let him off. Tina, a mountain of evidence. It seems like this guy is, is incredibly guilty, but one interesting uh, uh, issue um, that the state will have to deal with that I referenced earlier is there's no body yet, right? And generally, what you need to prove a murder case is that there was a person who was murdered. And the absence of a body is certainly an obstacle. That being said, the state will certainly allege, as they have in the arraignment this morning, that there is no body, 
because the defendant disposed of it, right? He's also seen on surveillance putting multiple garbage bags in dumpsters at apartment buildings around town. So generally an obstacle to not have a a body, but in this case, at least to me, it seems open and shut. When I was watching it, Tina, I was literally thinking this guy is going to admit it right then and there because listening to all this evidence was overwhelming. Yeah, Rich. I mean, I think given all the other um, circumstances around what's happened, you know, I think that if you have somebody who disappears without a body, you know, and there's really nothing else that sort of balances the evidence towards this person committing a murder, then I could see if you really don't have anything that leads up to it, then it's hard. And I could see a not guilty verdict. But here you did a great job profiling all the things sort of leading up to it what has been found, the blood, the weapon, the being caught on camera, the searching about how to dismember a body. I mean, I'm surprised that we haven't seen Sopranos DVDs on site too, which is a great way. I mean, just watch the Sopranos. I mean, they did it all the time, right? So, you know, all all to say that this is a horribly sad situation because of the kids left behind. And clearly, I mean, he he there there may be mental illness here too that ends up getting um, alleged here that he's that that's why it happened. Um, I think a self-defense, while it might be asserted as a defense, I think given at least what we know right now, I have to question how likely it would be to succeed just because of all these other things that happened leading up to the murder that demonstrate that, you know, he did this intentionally and um, that, you know, it wasn't like in the heat of the moment, you know, somebody had to defend themselves. I mean, it, he premeditated this from what we can tell. Yeah, and 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 I agree with all that. And Stephanie, what impresses me here is, I mean, it's it's great police work, obviously, but on the other hand, it's it's amazing how much incrimination there is by, you know, the the defendant here. Um, and it it sort of reminded me of the Moscow, Idaho murder. Similarly, that individual who's now charged with murder, you know, I mean, you're staking out this home for twelve days in a row. Um, you're gonna get caught, right? And in this case, again, I, I just can't believe that this individual uh, who's charged with murder in this case. Walsh, you know, he was searching again. I want to make sure we get the terms correctly. How long before a body starts to smell? Can you throw away body parts and dismemberment and the best ways to dispose of a body? That was on January 1st, the last day that his wife was seen. I mean, come on. It's it's, it's amazing how you can do that and think, you know, I'm not going to get caught. Yeah, I agree. You know, as I start reading all this stuff, it's like, it was the gift that kept on giving to investigators, right? You know, typically investigators, they, they have leads that end up getting dried up. Every lead, it seems like the investigators followed and it resulted in, in him, you know? Um, he disposed of some bloody items in his mom's apartment complex, you know? It's like everything was tied to him. He was on video surveillance everywhere he went. Um, you know, the kids are little. He's on his son's iPad. Um, you know, the kids, I think, are two, four, and six. He's using the son's iPad to, to search this stuff. There's also motive here, and, and we haven't scratched the search surface of it. I don't know if there was an affair or something else. I suspect there probably was, but I think there was a search on December 27th, a couple of days before. When's the best time to get a divorce or to ask for a divorce, right? There's going to be more that comes out that, that I think is going to go to motive here. Um, good points about, about self-defense and, and the Robert Durst case and others, but um, the mounting evidence of, of what he did subsequent to, um, and, and not, let's not forget misleading authorities, right? He actively right. tried to mislead authorities, and I think that that's going to go to his credibility as well. 
Yeah, Claire, ultimately when this case goes to trial, if it goes to trial, which, you know, unless he unless he admits to it, um, obviously it'll, it'll go to trial. Like one of the questions we always deal with in high profile trials is can you get a untainted jury? Can you get a jury of 12 people who haven't heard of this case and more importantly, haven't made up their mind as to the guilt or innocence of the defendant beforehand? When you have stories coming out like this, it's hard to find that jury pool, but so, I mean, they might move it out of, you know, the area in question, especially because it's a relatively small suburb of Boston. But uh, inevitably, I think this is like slam dunk evidence that's going to put this, this this guy away. Well, when we look at like beyond a reasonable doubt, I mean, we've he Googled multiple days in a row questions right. that just seem more and more incriminating. So when we're looking at what is the rate of decomposition of a body found in a plastic bag compared to that on surface in the woods? I mean, we're getting really specific. And then you've got the trip to home goods. You've got the trip to Home Depot. I mean, we've got multiple TJ Maxx's in there buying new math, bath mats. I mean, when you start to piece all of this together, uh, you know, if we're going to say self-defense, I don't I don't know that that really will resonate. Um, maybe, but when we're looking beyond a reasonable doubt, I don't know, again, when we're looking at, you can truly Google anything in this day and age and then back that up with, uh, the subsequent places that he visited and the items that were purchased afterwards. In addition to continued questioning of Google, kind of amazing what you're going to find. I think all you need to know about the guy is when he was first, like, you know, perp walked out of his house, he had that big smirk on his face, right? I mean, I don't know. Even even if you're completely innocent, you know, you've got three kids that are, that are you know, without a mother. How do you have a big smirk on your face? Yeah. Rich, for our next topic, we kind of saw this coming. Southwest dealing with quite the ripple effect from all the delays and cancellations during the rough holiday weather. Yeah, I mean, no question. Right. Um, one of the reasons we're around after almost nine years is that the. Uh, Inevitable uh, result of any major uh, event like this, especially, you know, snowmageddon or all the delays that happen around uh, Christmas is litigation, Tina. So in one way, we're thankful for this litigation as we've got some great stories to talk about. But a couple of different lawsuits coming out of the Southwest debacle a couple of weeks ago is, I mean, there's some individual lawsuits. Like, for example, one person sued Southwest is suing Southwest because they're alleging that the um, promised expense reimbursement hasn't been done or hasn't been done quickly enough. But the major uh, lawsuit that's really interesting legally is by shareholders, right? So shareholders are suing their own corporation, Southwest, and alleging that the way they acted both before and after this um, this event was in contrary, you know, contrary to the interests of the corporation and contrary to their fiduciary duties and shareholder responsibilities. And because they knew about this, Tina, allegedly, according to the lawsuit, and failed to act to remedy these scheduling and, uh, and technology issues in advance, that resulted in this happening, and more importantly, long term, um, you know, resulted in the huge drop in share that Southwest has undergone, and the long term reputational risk that has happened because of this. You know, um, I don't know that you could put a value on that, right? The sh- whatever the lawsuit is alleging in terms of damages, I don't know how long this will last. I mean, I know that for sure. When you mentioned Southwest today. The immediate thing you're thinking of is not, well, I could get to Orlando for 69 bucks. It's, oh my God, look what, look, look how they screwed up the holidays and look how many people they inconvenienced. So that's one of the long-term implications that if I, as a shareholder, would be pissed off at too. And the way to remedy your feelings of getting pissed off is go to court. Well, I think we could spend a lot of time talking about this. I mean, just one of my takeaways from this is, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where this case goes, the at least the shareholders case. I mean, I think when it comes to 
the cases that you first profiled about, you know, they didn't get their reimbursement within whatever time frame they were supposed to. I mean, those are relatively nominal compared to the second one that you profiled. And, and ultimately, we were having this conversation earlier. I mean, Southwest does what Southwest does in terms of offering a low cost, you know, like they're a low cost provider. And it's because they run, I mean, to me, this is pretty logical and simple that they run their airline differently than their main competition. There's, there is a reason why the prices, they're able to offer the prices that they offer. And I don't think that they've been particularly secretive about how they run their airline. This whole point to point notion of how they operate. I'm an operations person by training. So I sort of look at it through the lens of operations. I don't think they've been hiding the ball that this is how they run their airline and that it is different than the way the other airlines run it. I don't think that they've been necessarily hiding the ball either about their um, computer systems not being as state-of-the-art as maybe some of their competition either. I think what we saw here was a cascading of some of some what people would call vulnerabilities in their system cascading because of the of the events that happened in terms of the huge surge in demand in a holiday period with terrible weather. And so the way I look at it is I'm not surprised at all what happened. And, and so I don't, I, I just, I don't, it'll be interesting to see where these cases go because I, I, I don't think this should be a surprise to anyone, frankly. Well, but, but I hear you, but you know, the allegation, uh, Claire, is that not that we weren't aware that Southwest is a low cost carrier and that they, you know, give you peanuts only, but that at least since I think it was June of 2020, when there's a Baltimore Sun story detailing the computer issues that Southwest was having until, you know, fast forward till now, till a month ago, they knew about this computer issue. It wasn't news to them. And what the key element of the, of the lawsuit is, is that they failed to disclose that to employees and shareholders and also failed to act on it. So, you know, I think that's kind of the crux of the lawsuit. And I think that has some, you know, that has some teeth. Yeah, I would agree with that. It actually, so I come from the claims world and it reminds me of like every claim system known to man where, you know, from, you know, people need better technology and they need better enhancements. One of the other things I think is interesting is, okay, so we saw this with Southwest and then what, a couple of weeks ago, the FFA system crashes too. Mm -hmm. So it, is it an industry wide issue that's going on? Is it really specific to Southwest? I think there might be a bigger landscape that's going on here. But I think there is some teeth to the fact that they knew about it. But I also think that there is a more of a more of an awareness that has to be in existence with the employees of Southwest. You can't tell me that they don't know. But also then what was there? Was there any movement to try and remedy this to move forward? And then you add in, here comes the perfect storm to just kind of kick everybody into high holiday gear where you've got the snowstorm. You have the highest travel season. We're also probably the first real travel season outside of COVID too. So you're seeing a massive increase in what we had previously seen. And maybe that's one of the reasons that they didn't choose to do the technology updates when they originally were making those aware of in June of 2020 is because we had COVID. And so you had saw such a decrease in how many flights were operating and who was being staffed by them that they thought, all right, well, let's just try that and ride this out until we can get into a more stable environment and boom, here comes the perfect storm to try and kick that in high gear. Definitely three words to figure all this out. Um, free drink coupons. <laughs> I just they got some. everything. Give them all I just got some coupons. from them. I got, got four of them. Envelope. Yeah. <laughs> I love those. I 
like it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I with the shareholder lawsuit, um, I question the veracity of fraud and, and misleading statements. You know, I, I pulled the complaint. I see something here from, from Southwest Annual Report that says if companies' significant technologies or automated systems were to cease functioning, dot, 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 it could harm its operations and result in financial losses and reputational damage. That's in the report and that's cited by the plaintiffs in their complaint. So what is it exactly that, that Southwest was was keeping secret and, and not advising shareholders of? What was it that shareholders were so blindsided by, you know, when there was a final failure? I, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not convinced um, based on what I'm seeing so far. You and me, Stephanie, are in the same boat on that. <laughs> You know, when I when I think of the reputational risk that they're saying that they are, you know, worried about, their people are what makes that group. Like I know that we talk about, yes, they're a low budget, but let's be honest, last time if you do fly Southwest, their people are amazing. And so it makes me think about all of their employees that really are like the charismatic people that make your flights more enjoyable. You see their posts on LinkedIn and YouTube and you see them on TikTok and Instagram where these people like truly love their jobs. And that's when, when I think of their reputation, I instantly think about their people, not something about their technology, not about their shareholders, not about those executives, but the people that are actually manning those flights on a day-to-day basis. That's what I think of when I think of Southwest reputation. And maybe I'm a one-off for that, but it's when, when I do fly Southwest, it is one of the reasons I don't hate it is those lovely people. And of course the free drink coupons. No, I'll, I'll echo that, Claire, because I feel like <laughs> the thing I resonated the most with, yes, obviously free drink coupons. Um, but uh, somebody made a sarcastic post was like, oh, if you're if you're frustrated about uh, your travel complications right now, make sure you air it out with the lowest level employees that you deal yep. with in the entire yeah, company. Right. You know, like where yeah. that, that's where people's minds go automatically. And uh, yeah, no, totally, totally agree with you there. Uh, Tina, let's wrap up the legal grab bag. And I would start this off by saying be aware of hot mics, but probably just better to not have a hateful personality as a Chicago lawyer is in hot water after a racial slur was uttered when the microphone was not muted. Yeah, Joe. So one of the things we've seen coming out of COVID, and we've profiled a number of these stories on legal face-off over the last several years, is What goes wrong in Zoom meetings, whether they're between people or in court? And the latest story involves Chicago lawyer Donna Mikowski, who was on a Zoom call with a court last week. And while waiting for her client to appear, she allegedly used a number of racial slurs to describe people at the Cook County Sheriff's Office, including the N-word. Apparently, a number of the parties to the call heard her, including the judge, And Mikowski claims that her use of the N-word was not directed at the judge. She has reportedly apologized profusely and told the judge after the incident that she is shaken and humiliated by the incident. The judge said that she would not find Mikowski in contempt because the court can't teach adults to not make ignorant statements nor to make racial slurs whether they're directed at the court or not, and that she could not impose a punishment on Mikowski that would be more effective than the embarrassment and humiliation that she's feeling from the incident. Nevertheless, Mikowski may have to face the Illinois Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission for possible discipline. For those of our listeners who may not know what the ARDC is, it governs 
The licenses for attorneys and deals with complaints accusing lawyers of inappropriate and unethical behavior. I just, I, I scratch my head at this, Rich. I mean, it's just one big wow in my book. It's shocking stuff. I mean, it's the continued sort of um, unfortunate diminution of standards uh, in our practice, right? I mean, everything from attorneys showing up in their underwear for Zoom, we've all covered some of the craziest stories with Zoom court appearances to, you know, general uh, lack of decorum for not just the court, but for your colleagues. And, you know, again, it's all part of, I think, the same continuum. So um, I I respect, of course, the judge's sentiment, but I don't buy it. I mean, punish this person, um, in my opinion. It kind of reminded me of another story recently. I don't know if you know who Dana White is, but Dana White is the head of, you know, UFC uh, uh, Ultimate Fighting, and he was seen on video slapping his wife. Um, and his answer uh, in a couple of opportunities to explain, you know, how he is ready to face whatever punishment uh, is coming to him said, you know, the, the the ultimate punishment is I've got to walk around the rest of my life knowing that uh, I'm disrespected and people uh, saw this video. Well, yeah, but so what? Doesn't mean that you shouldn't be public, you know, punished as well. You hit a person, you hit a woman. Um, so, you know, similar to this situation, I respect the judge's feeling that. They cannot impose any more penalties, but, but yeah, they could, and, and we could, and the ARDC could. So, you know, I think this person deserves whatever punishment is coming to them. And, you know, it's a lesson, of course, that um, no matter if you're on Zoom or, you know, standing in front of a federal court judge, like, you know, like the one Stephanie worked for, we talked offline about how much we respected her former boss, you know, show some respect, show some decorum, because uh, all of this activity sort of, um, you know, uh, ultimately affects us all and, and, and shows the public that we're not worthy of the titles that we're, that we're holding. Stephanie, Claire, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I gotta, yeah, go ahead, Claire. I was going to say, I got to go with Joe on this one. It's a hateful personality because the, that type of verbiage isn't used in like, that's, if that's common language, that's not a one-off. I mean, right. if you're spewing that when you know you're going into court, I think that says everything about you off camera, outside of being, of, of being a practicing attorney, you know, but I also agree that this is, you're representing a very high level position and power within that. And so to have that type of hateful speech, I, I don't know, I'd like, I'd see the sanctions and I agree with the judge. I think the humiliation is apparent, but I also think that, you know, if you're going to represent people or you're going to hold these type of licensures and you're going to have that kind of credibility, you should be held to higher ethical standards. So Stephanie, I don't know what you think about that. I think we're all in agreement here. This is a sad day for the Chicago legal community. Our, our reputation here um, in the Windy City has is, is been tarnished by this person, um, and it's disgraceful. I, I think the judge was too easy on her. I mean, she's been licensed since 1984, um, had no other history of ARDC or ethical complaints or probation or anything like that, and it just made me think these people are just there in the community ready to use the N-word whenever they're having a bad day. And it's it's a sad day, I think, for, for the Chicago legal community. You know, we've been Zooming on, on board meetings with clients, depositions, mediations, court for three years now. You know, I, I don't think this is a, a Zoom, this person couldn't figure it out, like, you know, the cat face that we saw, you know, early on in COVID. This is just a nasty person. And, and I think we saw that too. I think she commented during the hearing, well, well, my deceased husband or my former husband was black, as if it excuses a racist comment like that. And I just, it's disgraceful. And I'm, I'm sad that, that we're having to report on something like this in our community. 
Well, Joe, let's try to end off on a, on a that's uh, everything you said was incredibly well stated guest, but let's uh, end off on a more positive note. And uh, maybe, you know, we like to go around the horn and maybe talk about our favorite. Uh, we know we're a little bit over time, but um, you know, we talked earlier with a, uh, a lawyer, with the, uh, the CEO of the robot lawyer company. We talked about the movie uh, Megan, right? The, uh, the AI dancing uh, girl that's kind of taken over the internet. Let's go around the horn and talk. Let's put you on the spot, of course, but, do you have any favorites? Uh, evil Robots? Doll, evil doll movies, right? I mean, there, there seems to be a trend lately of, of evil dolls. Let's go around. We'll, we'll give the easy ones to our guests first, Tina. We're going to put you on the spot. As a, Claire, what's your favorite uh, evil doll? Or maybe a friendly doll movie? Or All right. So I'm, gonna, I, I'm an 80s kid. So clowns and dolls are just my device. <laughs> um, but I would say I got to go Chucky. He's the original classic. And there's nothing oh, more ta- terrifying as that and it also traumatized me when I got a Cabbage Patch Kid doll after that movie came out. I thought my parents were just being cruel and unusual with their punishments. Anchor wrong with Chucky. <laughs> Stephanie, give us your favorite. I, I gotta go with the Terminator. Oh wow. <laughs> that's a good one. That's uh that's a little thinking out of the box, but that's a great one. Uh, uh Tina, your favorite uh Evil. I'll I'll add my friend Chucky here. I just, oh. <laughs> oh, Chucky readily available, but let's. All right, I didn't know your bed that. was right next to your desk, Rich. Yeah. <laughs> He's dedicated. Oh, He's my I love Chucky. I, I love Chucky. My friends will be on Tina. Favorite uh, evil doll uh, character movie? Huh? Chucky. Favorite one that hasn't been said on the show so far? Oh my god! Yeah, I'm are there right, more? Right of course, Chucky. there's so many. Annabelle. Add in the girl power, the bride of Chucky. <laughs> Chucky. Joe, you got a yeah, bride of Chucky for Tina and Joe. I mean, I, I, I I'm a, I'm fresh out of the bank. I, I have no idea after Chucky. Tough, tough category. So my favorite. There's a movie in the '70s, a horror film that, uh, as you know, I love horror films. And there's a movie called Magic, starring a very young Anthony Hopkins, and he played a uh, ventriloquist. And you know, his dummy, of course, took over. Uh, and started murdering people. So that was imprinted on my head as a very young person. I, I love it. If you haven't checked out the movie Magic, check that out. And we'll go with, uh, we'll end up with our favorite character, Chucky. Rich, you you know, you you control this. You and Tina control this podcast. You can just change it into a, a horror movie podcast if you'd like to, whenever you want. But Joe, than- will that affect your non-compete? Oh, that's true. Yeah, no, it doesn't say anything about uh, uh, moderating or officiating any uh, horror movie podcast so you're right that's a good point all right that's going to do it for the legal grab bag here on the legal face-off podcast big thanks to stephanie and claire for joining us today as well as our earlier guests of joshua browder julie ellen mcconnell and anthony michael christ we also want to thank our producers yvonne barbosa and ben anderson don't forget to like subscribe and share the legal face-off podcast if you enjoy it or even if you don't please give us five stars for Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks on the Legal Faceoff Podcast. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.